0: Hey everybody, Raul here for Bass Musician Magazine, and today we have the extraordinary honor and pleasure of chatting with bassist, vocalist, keyboard player, piano player, synth player, guitar player, songwriter, record producer, Ben McKee, and of course, the bassist for Imagine Dragons.
1: I usually just go by Ben. Okay. That's a lot of titles.
0: There you go, there you go. Well, you do a whole lot of stuff, but... I think probably more people are aware of your work on bass Mm -hmm. and that's what we want to talk about anyway. So let's kind of go back to the past. How did you get started in music and then on bass?
1: Music was something that, I mean, I guess, you know, I was always interested in from a very, very young age. I used to just love, you know, singing and dancing as like as old toddlers should do. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, trying to pick up my dad's guitar in the house. The first real formal training I had was starting piano lessons when I was, you know, six, seven years old. And then when I got a little older at school, they gave me the option of picking an instrument to play in the band. And I desperately wanted to play clarinet. So I I found my dad's old clarinet. And after two days of making the squeaky sounds running around the house, my parents banned me from playing clarinet. So I played uh, violin, I guess the next most squeaky instrument I could find. (laughs) after playing violin for a year and a half or so in my school's orchestra the string bass player was graduating and we didn't have anybody to play bass so because the teachers noticed that i had learned violin pretty quickly she switched me over to bass just as we were finishing paying off the violin oh. because we needed to fill that hole we had you know five violin players and zero bass players mm-hmm. And once I learned how to play string bass, there was a band at the school that needed a bass guitarist. So I was the only one that played bass. And I basically had a gig from the day I learned how to play something deep with four strings on. You know, Everybody needed a bass player. Back then, more, more so than today, every band needed a bass player.
0: Absolutely. Very, very cool. And then from there, from the early times, you pursued further training as well, right? Yeah,
1: I mean it was it was the only thing I really wanted to do. When I was 8 years old, I wrote myself a letter about how when I grew up I would be a musician touring the world and that would be, you know, the job I would have. I still I still, well I I used to have that letter. I guess my parents threw it away since I moved out of the house. <laughs> yeah, when I was in high school, you know, I went into the jazz band there and started studying at the junior college there during summer semesters and taking, you know, Friday night classes there. I really wanted to be a virtuosic jazz musician and was mostly focused on playing string bass for a lot of that time. Mm -hmm. After that, you know, from the junior college, I went to Berklee College of Music and studied there for three and a half years before dropping out to move to Las Vegas and be in Imagine Dragons.
0: Wow, and how did that connection with Imagine Dragons happen? Well,
1: when I was at Berklee, actually three of the other members of the band were in an ensemble with me where we were playing Really strange eclectic. It, the, the band was called Eclectic Electrics. It was five electric guitar <laughs> players, me on bass, and Daniel Platzman on drums. And it would be arrangements of like Bill Evans' piano solos or horn arrangements from Miles Davis' kind of blue album, but spread out for five guitars instead of five different horns or a piano. And we played in that ensemble for years. Daniel Sermon was one of the guitar players in that band. And when he graduated and moved out to Vegas, he you know, connected with Dan Reynolds and they wanted to really start taking music seriously. They needed a bass player. That's the story of my life, people needing a bass player. Yeah. So he called me and asked me if I'd be willing to drop out of school and move out to Vegas. I had sort of become Disillusioned with the idea of becoming the most virtuosic jazz bassist in the world, it was clear that that wasn't realistic for my my ability, and also it wasn't something that I was as connected to as playing music for people that weren't necessarily musicians. You know, for play music for that dancing two year old that I was when I was a kid. You know, I wanted to make that kind of music, just music that could reach. The masses and make everybody happy just just hearing it no matter what your background was and that's what we set out to do with imagine dragons
0: absolutely well and i've spoken to quite a few berkeley students not always and many times not grads because with the networking they connected with somebody and when a full-time gig was that i mean they were like that's the whole reason i went to school to be able to be a full-time performer so if the opportunity is now I'm not, why should I wait? Why should I take any more classes? And,
1: yeah, I know when I was at Berkeley, there was sort of this mentality of like, if you graduate, you fail, you know, because <laughs> you're supposed to get the gig before you make it to the end of your uh, college career.
0: There you go. There you go. Well, and we had an interesting one of our, our writers, a very cool Prague bass player, Kilian Duarte, did a day at Berkeley studying Mike Pope, because Mike's teaching oh, there nice. now. And it was one of our opus pieces because a whole day worth of sitting in some of the classes with all the different players, a ton of very talented musicians. I can see where one might go, oh, yeah, I was going to be the the top banana here. And then they are like, oh, wow, there's a lot of really good (laughs) players. Yeah. Yeah. But it's certainly our game because Imagine Dragons just has been... I mean, my gosh, you guys have over 75 million uh, sales and just – it's huge. It's an absolute huge – and it couldn't be – I won't say farther from jazz than we could imagine, but because there, there is always it, – but it is definitely not that eclectic.
1: Yeah, it's certainly on the opposite end of the accessibility spectrum from totally.
0: jazz. Totally. Well, and – how do you come up because again the, the genres are so different what inspiration do you use to create your bass lines?
1: i mean i was always i i really love pop music too like i grew up wanting to be a jazz musician and then becoming like a passionate studier of pop music and mm-hmm. stuff and really when we came together as a band we had you know from the day day one of rehearsal we had gigs lined up you know people we had hustled to get gigs before we even got together so we needed to figure out ways to fill out these gigs so the the casinos that we were playing for demanded that we learn that we play a certain amount of cover songs so what we did is each of us brought in a list of 10 or 15 of our personal favorite songs in the pop music format from the last 40 50 years and we all learned each other's favorite songs, which not only got us on the same page of, as each other and learning where where we all came from, but it also was like a study of the music that had longevity and, you know, stuck on the charts for a long time. It's sort of like a, a broad spectrum study of that music that appealed to five very different people at mm-hmm. that time that grew up li- listening to different music. There was no overlap on our list. Wow. And I think studying that style sort of got me from day one into the right mindset of being sort of a musical chameleon. And just sort of, when we're creating a song, I try to not think of like, how can I make like make this have my personal signature on it or something. It's like, really, what style does this song remind me of? What's the terroir of this song? Like, mm-hmm. what are the elements? that this is drawing on, like what what continent do I see this song living on? You know, what are the styles of musicianship that goes into that? What do the bass melodies look like in that style of music? And then I try to just be as consistent and as intuitive above all else. And I try to be, especially when we're recording, I play, you know, a more simplified version of stuff than from what I'll play live because we really like to get into arrangement. And the more room I can leave for melodic space in layering vocal parts or adding strings or synth accompaniment you know that that is a fun way to kind of add more depth to our songs and i enjoy adding those components too so it leaves more room for me to not be stepping on my own toes or on the toes of some other you know sonic element in the uh, in the mix
0: very nice very nice and recently we have Act 2 of Mercury. Mercury Act 1 was, what, 2021? And then 2022 Mm -hmm. is Act 2. Obviously, you guys kept busy during the pandemic. Yes. (laughs) And super creative. I've been listening to some of Act 2 recently. uh, Sharks, especially for those of us that uh, have visited Vegas frequently. I never realized there was a connection from the Bellagio to the Shark Tank at the Mandalay Bay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we may have fallen into the uh, the trap of being taking some liberties with the geography of the Las Vegas Strip. It's kind of like uh, movies, t- depictions of the Las Vegas Strip tend to not be totally accurate. My favorite one is in Con Air with Nicholas Cage at the end when they're landing. It's like. But that plane crashes through four casinos that are located nowhere near each other.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. They just look better. And then, of course, with the ending of there being the sharks in the Bellagio Fountain, which way cool CG effect, I'm sure. You know, no no actual sharks got <laughs> oh, to yeah. run through there. But, you know, super creative. And then with Bones, I put it in the category of best zombies dancing since Thriller. So... <laughs>
1: Well, thank you, yes. I mean, we wouldn't try to compete with Michael Jackson, but, um, you know, when making zombie music videos, it's hard not to have that reference come up.
0: Absolutely. But, I mean, all of the steps are also very original, so, mm-hmm. and, and that I think that in itself is uh, trying so hard not to, but the, the music, it's catchy, it sticks, you know, my five-year-old grandson just can't help himself to hum along and Put in the words where he recognizes it a few go. He doesn't know all the lyrics yet, but but he's doing that. We should talk about how you're getting your sound. What are you playing on? Ah.
1: Sadowski. I love my Sadowski basses. Nice. Uh, they are just the best sounding basses I've ever played. And actually the way I came to fall in love with the Sadowski sound was we were um working with Han Zimmer on the film score for one of the Transformers movies. Oh. And I up to that point had been playing really exclusively passive basses, but for scoring a movie with like robot dinosaurs and stuff, it's like you need you need the super active, super jazz bass sound that Sadowski has. So I called up Roger. Roger sent me a bass like right then to use in the studio and I have not played another bass since then. It's it, it, the tone is just perfect. I just crank it all the way open and uh
0: let it fly. Nice, nice. And did you put all the wear on that or did they do a, a seasoned version for you? <laughs> well,
1: this this bass was I was not the first owner of that. I believe that bass was played on one of the late night shows for a little while. It was on loan there. It was it was a uh somewhat relic base, but a lot of those chips especially up here on this horn is from a I used to wear a big medallion like a big Gucci Hercules medallion around my neck, that hung down that low when I would play and I would actually in my bass solo you know I'd get into some slapping and at the end I'd take the medallion and slap it at the strings at the end oh and,
0: wow. uh,
1: I definitely took a couple of chips out of it doesn't
0: affect the playability, though. And you know, and it's one of those interesting things when they relic, when companies relic bases. You know, they, they kind of go for some of the traditional spots where your arm, your your right arm might rest on that upper corner, uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe a little belt rash on the inside, <laughs> but you know that that upper horn is it does look like you've been fending off some kind of creature, so.
1: Oh uh, yeah, no, the, the medallion chunks are a major part of my relicing process.
0: Nice, nice, it's a, a unique approach. And what kind of strings do you have on your basses?
1: Using elixir strings, they sound great, they last really long, and they seem to withstand a medallion pummeling, you know, better <laughs> than some others. <laughs>
0: well, it sounds that goes well beyond the normal expectation, and do they still last you even pummeling them like that?
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Never had an issue. It's, it's great. Yeah, but, you know it, it keeps me keeps me happy. You know, with my simple simple rig.
0: Nice, nice. And do you have any other elements? Do you use much in the way of pedals? Or I
1: used to use pedals, but we actually I I used to have you know a big stack on stage. At one point, I was actually touring with a B fifty a nineteen sixty seven B fifteen as my touring rig. Oh, wow. Playing some of these old you know small club gigs. And I graduated to, you know, a high watt and Bergantino four by twelve stack that I loved forever. But now we have no speakers on stage, no amp. I actually run through a, oh, uh, uh, what the hell do you call
0: it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know when those brands slip your, slip your head.
0: I hear you. Well, if you look at it a lot, you That's can great. go, what is this?
1: A Kemper modeling uh, amplifier. Oh wow! Me and our our guitarist both use the same the same rig. We have two of these running, you know, in case we have one fails, it jumps onto the other one. We haven't had any issues, and I program all my effects into this thing. So it's really really simple. You can model your own amplifier on it if you have a, a particularly quirky old tube amp that you like the behavior of or something, mm-hmm. and it has. Effects that are super functional. For I find in a in a live environment, especially in like a stadium, you're crazy if you think you're going to be able to perfectly get a record. You like get your tone to sound the way it sounds in a record. Mm-hmm. So I try to get it somewhere close, and then we have an amazing front of house engineer, Scott, that I trust implicitly to get to the best place for that room.
0: Nice. People are kind of jettisoning the large, the giant stacks of amps. Unless you are doing like hair metal or some of the other stuff, it's it's all front of house kind of stuff. But kind of the toss up is: Do you miss feeling the air pushing from behind coming out of your amp, or you know?
1: Um, well, I find that most of the uh, the push I get, most of the feeling that I get now, is from the subs under the stage. Wow! You know, I don't think that I would really notice the amp so much at this point on on the stages that we're playing. there was That was a concern of mine and it was an adjustment. You know, it was an adjustment for us when we went from wedges to in-ears too, mm. but um, everything that I can do to try to preserve my hearing and also give more control to our front of house engineer, I think that serves me and serves our show and the sound for our audience
0: best. Absolutely, very cool. And any other key elements? Uh, that the Kempers great. Any any other secret things that you have in your in your gear bag that you use?
1: No, not really. I mean sometimes we'll we'll have some fun in the box when I'm, you know, messing with some stuff. I like to, you know, sometimes we'll chop up the bass and resample it or, you know, filter it or or add some aerial chorus effect or something like that, you know. But really doing most of that in the box
0: these days as we look ahead with new albums Mercury one Mercury tool I understand there's a world tour planned for 2023
1: yeah well it's it's more of the uh, the tail end of the world tour that we've been doing all year you know we've already oh, wow. been to Europe maybe twice already we're going to South America making up a tour that we had to postpone. <laughs> we've done North America we've done a did a dedicated Canada tour for the first time. Wow. We're we're actually in January we're going to the Middle East and India and South Africa for the first time. We have a lot coming up and as, you know, as much as we have on the on the books as far as uh, shows go, we are also looking forward to recording the next album and, you know, we're already talking about getting back in the studio and starting through to work on the next project.
0: Nice, nice. From what I can see, it looks like even just the 2023, you've got a, a bunch of dates. <laughs> so yeah. it, it is not for the fate of heart in there. Oh
1: no, it is It is not a young person's <laughs> game. I can feel the touring catching up with me at this point. And uh, you know, we're just gonna keep on going and pushing on as, as long as the bodies are able because the uh, the mind and the spirit is willing.
0: With being so busy with Imagine Dragons, do you find any time to work on any projects of your own, kind of side projects of your own, or is it so much all encompassing at this point? Oh, I'm,
1: I love making music for fun. And, um, you know, I think we're all constantly making music. Me and our drummer, Daniel Platzman will often get together. He has an amazing recording studio that he built in Las Vegas. And we get in there and we just record whatever the hell comes out of our heads just <laughs> for fun. And it is amazing. I mean, Art for Art's Sake is really what life is all about. You know, it, if, you, if you can get to a point where you can just make Art for Art's Sake, you know, you're, you're truly, truly in a, in a lucky spot. And we go down there, we'll, we'll make songs about, we, we've made more than one song from the perspective of a cat. Let's just say that there's there's no rules, there's no expectations. It's just as long as we're having a good time doing it and we we get a smile on our face, we're having a successful recording session.
0: Very very nice. Well, and the key thing, as you mentioned, art for art's sake. I think so many masterpieces that we think of, I'll say more in plastic arts like paintings and sculptures and things, they were artistically set free by having some benefactor that could provide the everyday stuff that they needed. Yeah. So they weren't going, how many statues do I have to sell this year so that I can eat? <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: There, there's, a, I think that the best art is created when you are relaxed to the point of boredom. It's like, like, just like, oh my god, I have nothing to worry about <laughs> except for creating. You know, that's when that's when you truly have the most freedom to create the most true and I I think representative of yourself kind of pieces of art. Nice,
0: nice. nice. And if people want to stay on top of where you guys are going to be website, I've got Imaginedragonsmusic.com.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And of course, social media, kind of the varieties of at Imaginedragons. You have your own social media as well?
1: Yep, at Ben A. McKee. I think that's the same on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And I post everything Imagine Dragons and everything social activism that I'm a part of as well. You know, I'm a board member of three different nonprofits. So I'm uh, I'm always trying to keep people's focus on good causes.
0: Well, it is important. I think music is our therapeutic part, but we can't lose track of what's going on around us. (laughs) While we we have our little relief in the music, per se. Yeah. Nice. Well, Ben, we appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule amidst all the touring holidays that are coming up. Folks, you've seen him here, Ben McKee on Bass Musician Magazine. Thank you so much.